In case you haven't heard, Love is on the TV again. Last week saw the start of the winter edition of Love Island. In case you don't know what that is, you'll be very fortunate if you don't, uh, this reality TV show where a group of scantily clad contestants live under constant video surveillance and compete for £50,000 prize money. And obviously, possibly a career in reality TV. And they do this by coupling up with each other, surviving all the other contestants, trying to break them up, fooling everybody that they're genuinely in love, and finally winning the, the public vote. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? Pretty, pretty embarrassing and horrible. I'm astonished that anybody would ever watch it, never mind actually go on it. It's one of those programs that even if I'd had an interest in watching it, I just couldn't because my embarrassment levels would be just far too high. But actually this is growing in popularity, this thing. This year is the first year with two series planned. And last year's final, it was watched by something like 650,000 people in Ireland and over 6 million people in the UK. Now on his last night with his disciples, Jesus was also thinking about love. But on his mind was a very different kind of love. And that's what he spoke about just after Judas left. So we're going to read John chapter 13. We're going to look just at the last section of John chapter 13 today, following on from where we left off last week. So it's John chapter 13, or two weeks ago it was. John chapter 13, verse 31. When he was gone, that's Judas, Jesus said... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Judas had just left the upper room where Jesus was having dinner with his disciples. And he went out into the night, it says in John chapter 13, verse 30. For the final time he had rejected Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus knew that later that night, he would be arrested by soldiers, brought to an illegal trial, unjustly found guilty by wicked men, and that the next day he would be crucified in agony and shame, rejected by his own people, and abandoned by his disciples. And yet, despite all of this, 
Jesus was not filled with anger or frustration or resentment. Instead, he spoke to his disciples both about glorifying God and about loving each other. When Judas left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The Son of Man is one of the the, the titles that Jesus often used to describe himself. And it often pointed pointed to him being the Messiah. God's anointed one. The God-appointed king of his people. And Jesus said that this was the time that he would be glorified. This was the time when his majesty would be revealed. Where the beauty of his character would be demonstrated. Where the greatness of his power would be seen. Where his true awesomeness would be made known. And through this, through being glorified, his father would be glorified. Because of the unity of the Father and the Son, when Jesus was glorified, then the Father was glorified. The greatness, the beauty, the awesomeness, the majesty of His Father would also be revealed. And glorifying His Father was always at the heart of Jesus' mission. That's what He was always about. Glorifying His Father. It was His passion it was his purpose. You can see that a little later on in John chapter 17. When he prays, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. And that was his motivation in ministry as well. In that prayer he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And the reason for this commitment was his total love for his Father. In John 14 he says, The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So this was the the driving force of Jesus' life and ministry. It was to express his love for God by glorifying God. And if that was his driving force in his life and ministry, then it also should be our driving force in our lives too. This should be our passion. This should be our purpose. This should be our ultimate longing. This is the ultimate reason why we sang those beautiful words in those songs this morning. Those songs of praise and worship. It was to express our our love for God. And we sought to glorify God with our voices and with that music. Peter says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is our purpose, this is our our calling. We are a worship team to glorify God. That should also be our goal in service for God. Peter also says in this letter, If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so then all things God 
may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. That's why we're called to serve. We're called to serve, to honour God. Not to make a name for ourselves. Not to raise the profile of our church. But to glorify God. This should also be the driving force for, in our desire to be fruitful in our lives for God. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus said in chapter 15, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. But it's not just in times of worship or times of ministry that our goal should be to, to glorify God. It should also be our purpose in just our everyday lives, in our everyday things that we do. When Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he was discussing a, a controversy at that time about whether they should eat food that had been sacrificed to idols or not. This is what he said. He said, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So we are supposed to seek to glorify God on Sunday morning when we gather together, through the week when we get involved in Christian ministries, when we go home and do the dishes, or when we go home and feed the kids, or when we go home and, and spend just time in leisure, when we go to work on Monday morning, or whatever we do, whether we go to college or courses or, or school or anything else, whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. But sometimes I think, if you're like me at all, it feels like that's impossible in lives like ours. Because we might feel weak and struggling. We might be suffering through ill health or opposition. So how can God be glorified in us when we don't feel very glorious? But that's why it's essential to see what Jesus was talking about here. When he said, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified and God is glorified in him, it wasn't going to happen the way most people would have expected. Because from a human perspective, the events of the next few hours were far from glorious. They were including unspeakable suffering and humiliation. Jesus would be betrayed and arrested and deserted and accused and rejected and flogged and ridiculed and condemned and crucified. But in all of this, Jesus knew that these events would glorify God. That's because that despite how they looked, they would reveal God's holiness and his love and his power. They would reveal God's holiness as the payment for all the unpunished sin in this world was poured out on Jesus so that God would be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. They would reveal God's love as on the cross, God demonstrates his love towards us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And they would reveal God's 
power. That's when Jesus died, he defeated the forces of evil, triumphing over them by the cross. So despite how many people would have looked on and how they would have concluded what was happening through those hours, God was glorified. God's holiness, His love, His power was revealed. And so in our lives too, God is not just glorified when we're doing well, when we're experiencing success or victory. But God is especially glorified through our weaknesses and our struggles, in our limitations and in our inadequacies. Because it's in those difficult times, it's when we're really struggling, that we have the incredible opportunity to show to this world that no matter what we go through, Jesus is so wonderful, so precious, so great that he is enough. It's in the difficult times we show the world that he is enough. Just reminds me of a little quote I have on my phone. I'm not going to go and try and find it now. It says something like this, that the world is not impressed when Christians praise God when everything's going well in their life, they're impressed when people, when Christians praise God when everything's a mess. And they still see that Jesus is a treasure worth celebrating. It's in those difficult times that we most clearly demonstrate that we consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So this is what we're called to do. We're called to love God and glorify Him by declaring that He is ultimately our treasure. He is the one that we seek to honour, that we seek to worship. That's what Jesus did. But we're also called to love one another as well. After warning his disciples that he would be with them for only a little longer, he said to them, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, this is similar to the Old Testament command or the Old Testament law of love your neighbour as yourself. That's because love has always been at the heart of God's commands. Loving God and loving others always goes together. If you're going to love God, you're going to have to love others too. But Jesus said that this command that he was giving in John chapter 13 was a new command. That's partly because it's specifically for a new covenant community. A community not defined by natural connections of family or race or nationality but rather a community that's defined by their unity in Christ. The fact that they are joined together through their faith in Jesus. Now, of course, we are called to love the world. But this new command is about loving one another because we're brothers and sisters in God's family. So Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. That's our calling. 
but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's our priority. But this command is also new, not just because it's focused on this new family connection through our faith in Jesus, but it's also new because of the depth to which you are called to love one another. Verse 34 again, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Our love for each other should be characterised by Jesus' love for us. So what does that mean? How did Jesus love us? So that we can learn how we should love one another. Well, his love was always an active love, wasn't it? His love led him to act in the interests of others. So as we've seen through this gospel, we've seen him uh, uh, heal the sick, feed the hungry, teach the people, raise the dead, wash dirty feet. And so we're called to serve one another in love. This love is primarily not a kind of warm, fuzzy feeling of affection to somebody. That's great if you have that. Wonderful. That's not what it really is about. Neither is it just about not doing harm to somebody else. Well, I love them because I don't go and beat them up. That kind of thing. Rather, it's a positive command to lovingly help one another. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Love is something that we should do. It should lead us to act for the benefit of somebody else. So Jesus' love was active love. It's also an indiscriminate love. It was a love that knew no limitations. His love led him to reach out to men and women and kids. It led him to reach out to the outcasts of society as well as the religious leaders. To the beggar and the rich tax collector. No section of society was excluded. So Christian love is not about just being friendly with those that we we like or those that we kind of click with. It's a love that welcomes All people, irrespective of age, or gender, or colour, or moral history, or social status, or influence, or intelligence, or religious background. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. God's love was active, indiscriminate. It's also unconditional. A love that was in no way dependent on the goodness of the, the recipients. His love was love for sinners. That's what we've seen just in the early part of this chapter, isn't it? As Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples despite the fact that Judas was just about to betray him. Peter was just about to deny him and majority of the rest were about to abandon him. So we too are called to love unconditionally despite their faults or failures or selfishness. 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love keeps no record of wrongs. It's a love that celebrates in the good times and lovingly deals with the bad times as well. To seek reconciliation and restoration. It's a love that keeps on loving. Active, indiscriminate, unconditional. But of course Jesus' love was also sacrificial. Paul said that he is the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're thinking about it at communion time this morning. Loving us cost him dearly. It cost him the glory of heaven as he left heaven to come and to live in this fallen, messed up, sinful world. It cost him his privacy as he willingly allowed people to invade his life. Demanding and asking for what they needed. It cost him his reputation in the eyes of respectable society as he was criticised for being a friend of sinners. It cost him emotional pain as he wept over Lazarus' grave or over Jerusalem. As he cried out in pain in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the cross. And of course, ultimately, it cost him his life as he died for us. And in case we think we're, we're exaggerating and saying this is the standard by which we are supposed to love people, John makes it really clear in his letter. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We're called to die to self. To give up our interests, our priorities, to lovingly serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is the standard of love that we're called to show each other. This is the radical, faithful, genuine love that Jesus wants to be the the norm in our church. This isn't about setting a standard that's saying, well, some people will do this and other people, well, well, don't worry about it. We'll just set a a, a lower standard. This is supposed to be the norm. The commonplace in our church. And this is the love that will enable us to, as a church, to have an impact on our world. Verse 35, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What will convince people that we are true followers of Jesus? Well, it's not the size of our church. It's not our enthusiasm in worship. It's not our power in preaching. It's not our knowledge of the Bible, our experience of miracles, or our respectability in our society. Not none of those, it's none of those things. Instead, the defining characteristic of our church should be our love for one another. This is how we demonstrate to the world that we belong to Christ. So this is a different kind of love that Jesus is looking for in our lives. It's a million miles away from the the kind of love that you might see on programs like Love Island. Instead, it's a wholehearted love for God that seeks to glorify Him in everything that we do. And it's an active, indiscriminate, unconditional, sacrificial love for others that makes us stand out in the world. 
Now we could close our Bibles there and we could all go away feeling absolutely depressed and downcast and disheartened. Couldn't we? Because a real problem with this. The problem is it's impossible. In our own strength this is just impossible. On our own none of us can love like that. That's what Peter found out in this passage that we're looking at this morning. All this talk of Jesus leaving had Peter worried. And so he asked the Lord, the Lord, Lord, where are you going? He didn't want Jesus to leave. But Jesus knew that Peter couldn't go with him yet. So he says in verse 36, Where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Many people see here a ref- reference to the fact that Jesus would ultimately lay down his life for his Lord and martyrdom. But Peter wasn't willing to wait. He felt like he was ready right there and then to give everything for Jesus. So he said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter genuinely believed in his Lord. He was committed to him. He was sure that nothing would get in the way of that commitment. But the problem was Peter didn't know his own heart. He wasn't aware of his own weakness and his own limitation. He hadn't faced up to the reality of his own sinfulness and selfishness. And so Jesus told him, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows you will disown me three times. It was a difficult reality to accept. But Peter needed to face up to it. He needed to learn from it that in his own strength, his love for God and his love for others was just too weak. Sooner or later, on his own, Peter would fail. And we need to face that same reality. God is calling us to love him with all of our heart and mind and strength. And he's calling us to love each other as Jesus loves us. But in our own strength it's impossible. We can't reach that standard. We can't achieve that goal for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Peter's failure here is not recorded so that we can point the finger and condemn and ridicule him. What what amazing man Peter was. How ridiculous it is that he failed his Lord right there and then. We would never do that, of course not. That's not the point. Instead it's recorded so that we can see ourselves in Peter. And be humble enough to accept our sinfulness in each of our hearts. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's us. But this isn't the end of Peter's story. His life didn't end in tragic failure. His life would be transformed and he would get back to glorifying God and loving his people. That's because Peter would be restored by the amazing grace of Jesus. We'll get there eventually in chapter 21. 
And it's because he would be empowered to live for Jesus through the gift of the Holy Spirit that he would receive on the day of Pentecost. But those gifts of grace and power were only possible because despite Peter's failure, Jesus went to the cross for him. Peter said this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So it was the cross that transformed Peter's life and would continue to change him and help him to increasingly live and love like Jesus. And it's the cross that will transform our lives too. As our hearts are overwhelmed by the love that led him to lay down his life for us. As we experience that forgiveness and that grace that he paid for with his own blood. And as we receive the Holy Spirit and allow him to continue to produce the fruit of love in our lives. So that is why Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Because this kind of love is only possible if we are a disciple of Jesus. It's only possible through the power of Jesus. We cannot do this on our own. But because Jesus died for us, our lives can be increasingly transformed step by step, day by day, so that we can grow to love more and more like Jesus. So folks, please don't get caught up in the world's ideas of what love looks like. Instead, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The one who loved us and gave his life for us. And I will allow God to increasingly enable us to love like Jesus.